Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. This is New York. Uh, The reality is that we are a target by many who would like to make a statement against democracy, against freedom. We have the Statue of Liberty in our harbor, and that makes us an international target. We understand that. The counter-reality is that this is New York, and we all pitch together, and we are a savvy people. Let's go back to work. Uh, We're not going to allow them to disrupt us. That's exactly what want. And that is exactly what they're not going to get. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with you. That was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo talking about the uh, attempted suicide bombing of the New York City subway system this morning, a a subway transit tunnel very close to Times Square, really between Times Square and the Port Authority bus terminal, which is another huge transit hub. Uh, Here's, well... What we know is that the terrorist in this case is from Bangladesh, lived in this country for about seven years. He had an improvised explosive device on his person tied to his chest. Those of us with uh, military or national security backgrounds call that an S-vest or a suicide vest. And this uh, individual involved in this attack was a would-be suicide bomber. I'm surprised to see there are so few who are referring to this attack in that way. I mean, everyone knows it's a terrorist attack and everyone understands that they're well, I shouldn't say everybody, but people understand, generally speaking, that this is going to be a continued threat, especially over the holidays. Um, But this is just these this individual is very it's very difficult to stop and we keep having this similar discussion i akayed ula of bangladesh he tried to kill a bunch of people during rush hour here in new york city over the holidays an attempted suicide bomber in new york now why why do i think it's important to put it in that context for you why does the language here matter so much well let me say this The way we view this and the way the media is treating this terrorist attack in New York City this morning is that we got lucky and we should just breathe a big sigh of relief. And there's absolutely truth to that. Those are those are true things. We did get lucky. And we we are breathing a sigh of relief. Nobody was seriously injured in this attack, Uh, although they. Akayad Ula, the terrorist, he burned himself a bit, but nothing, even he wasn't that badly injured, which means this device was either so poorly constructed that it's tough to even call it a bomb, or I think more likely didn't fully 
detonate as planned, this uh, suicide vest. But the storyline is, okay, no casualties, so by tomorrow we'll move on to other things. By tomorrow there'll be other stories that are uh, drawing our attention. But understand that the Islamic State, and there are already sources that are saying that he pledged that Akayed Ullah, the would-be suicide bomber here in New York this morning, that he pledged fealty to the Islamic State. I'm very, you know, very likely to believe that's the case, especially because they don't hide it anymore. It is explicit in ISIS instructions online. If you're going to do this for the Islamic State, if you're going to pledge bayat or fealty, leave notes. Leave behind a little manifesto or just leave behind something so that it's clear because what they don't have or what they don't want is a situation where, and this has happened in this country, and I know some of you can remember the events, they don't want ISIS adherents to attack and to kill people and then have the American left media say, well, this was a hate crime or, you know, this was about guns or something else, right? They... The Islamic State wants clarity when it comes to the purposes for the terrorism. And hence why I'm sure they'll find, just like with the the driver who was running people over in lower Manhattan uh, a matter of weeks ago on Halloween, uh, they... He had with him a note about the Islamic State. They're not hiding it. They want people to know. So I I would believe these reports that are already out saying that Takayad Ullah was an ISIS fighter. But the the problem, or an ISIS-inspired individual, problem here with the way that um, the narrative goes is that from the Islamic State's perspective, this shows many of their would-be jihadists, what happened today in New York City. It shows them that it's easy. It's easy to get into a crowded part of a major U.S. city. It's easy to conceal some kind of a weapon or a bomb. And you can strike at the very uh, at the very core of a city, of a town, anywhere in the country, if you just have the will to murder innocent men, women, and children. So from from our side of it, yes, there were no casualties, and so that's uh, a cause for real relief. But keep in mind that we got lucky. We may not get lucky the next time around. And that someone could come to this country, live here for seven years, and be so brainwashed and have so much hate in his heart for uh, for Americans. And to be here in New York City, for example, where this this city is like I'm on the subway every day here and we are so diverse that I, I think it's fair to say that every country in the world has people here. Right. I mean, we, we are representative of, of people from all over the world and that Akayad Ullah uh, would have so much hatred of not just. Americans, but his fellow human beings that he would try to do this goes to show you the depths of the depravity and the brainwashing that occurs when one embraces jihad and the philosophy behind it. When uh, when a person decides to become a mujahideen, a holy warrior, um, there are also reports that say uh, that Ullah was doing this in response to Trump's 
Israel move. Those are not yet confirmed, but but those are there are news reports that are saying that because they've they've got the suspect in custody. They have him. So we'll see if that turns out to be the case. He may have been an ISIS inspired individual who also felt compelled to act now because of Trump's move. Wouldn't it be interesting if the if someone who is of ISIS ideology decided that the move of a U.S. embassy structure as a policy matter when it comes to Israel and Palestine was some kind of a trigger for jihadist action. Media won't want to tell you this, but that's a reminder that the problem of Palestine and its relations or Palestinians and their relations with the Israeli state are at their core about hatred and anti-Semitism. And jihadists are all anti-Semites. And jihadists, uh, hardline fundamentalists within the Islamic faith, point to a number of passages in the Quran that are uh, hateful when it comes to Jews. And we, we know for a whole lot of reasons that they espouse freely that uh, Wahhabists and Salafists and uh, jihadists of all kinds hate the Jewish state, hate America and hate the West. And more than hating the Jewish state, this is important. They hate Jews. If I have time, I'll speak to this as well. But when you see violence in Sweden against a synagogue by Muslims who are upset about what the U.S. did in Israel, they're not attacking the Israeli state. They're not even attacking America. They're just attacking Jews because they hate them, because there is a hatred in jihadist circles for the Jewish people, not for it's not about Israeli foreign policy, just like when the bin Ladens of the world hit us. It's not about American foreign policy either. That's just the excuse. But there's always going to be an excuse. If it isn't about recent foreign policy, it's about previous foreign policy. If a jihadist can't find a reason to blow up a bunch of men, women and children that he's never met before for no reason at all, he'll point back to Sykes-Picot or the Balfour Declaration. Or the U.S. positioning in the Six-Day War or, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. They'll find something. They will always find something because it is ultimately about hatred and a belief in a totalitarian system that is both temporal and celestial. Jihadism is about conquering the world here and then controlling the world in the ever after. And today we had a Kayad Ullah trying to get his pathway to uh, to paradise by killing a bunch of people who are just trying to go to work or go see friends, visit relatives, whatever it is they're doing, just going about their day. That we would bring in someone from a foreign country, and yes, it has already been confirmed, it's through chain migration, the Halloween vehicle terrorist also came in through chain migration. I believe in his case, it was one of... He was one of 17. Akayed Ullah of Bangladesh had a relative, and so he came here. Uh, I think we can finally say that, you know what, there needs to be a conversation about chain migration, and here's how it has to go. Coming to America, becoming a permanent resident here or a citizen is a tremendous privilege, one that we should reserve for the most uh, dedicated to our ideals and ideology with the greatest love in their hearts for this country. And it's not just a, 
It's not a luck thing. It's not a lottery. It's not, oh, my my second cousin so-and-so lives there, so now I get to live there too. I think a lot of Americans just assume that our immigration policy couldn't possibly be as stupid as it is, and I don't blame them, but it is that stupid. It isn't based on merit. It is based on familial ties, which is a fancy way of saying chain migration and anchor babies and all kinds of loopholes and carve outs and nonsense that have well that has been pushed upon the american people often quietly and dishonestly by democrats and yes far too many republicans as well but back to akayad ullah for a moment this jihadist uh, is now going to be interrogated and people are saying well should we keep him as an enemy combatant or i can tell you this He doesn't, very unlikely he has anything to share beyond what websites he was spending time on, where he was going to get his radical content. Perhaps he was in touch with some other radicalized individuals, but I'm I'm not, uh, I wouldn't bet on that. But now we have to face the continued reality that there are no good answers about what to do when it comes to these attacks. Sure, we can limit our exposure via via our own immigration system, and that's certainly a wise position. But stopping people from committing these kinds of atrocities, these terrorist acts, and today, granted, there was really no bloodshed and, you know, it could have been so much worse. But stopping them is a near impossibility, and it's becoming clear that this is one of the prices we pay in a free society. And a free society that is often hobbled by its political correctness and the the dictates of a multicultural society um, that are enforced upon all of us with with a zeal by the left that should give us all real pause. We should be rethinking many of the core principles of the multiculturalist ethic of the left here, as we have been and certainly do here on this show. Uh, but yet another Muslim jihadist here in New York City, here in my hometown, trying to kill people mere blocks from where I work, and so many hundreds of thousands of others are just uh, going through that corridor in that area every day. And what what is what is there to say about it other than we have to stay vigilant, we have to understand that we are in a war. And within the Islamic faith, there are unfortunately far too many people that latch on to this narrative of jihad, and the world is worse off for it. And it doesn't have to be this way. A lot of people outside the Muslim world, not a lot of terrorists. So, you know, th- this process of coming to an understanding within Islam about why this keeps happening. It's an ongoing debate. I'm not going to pretend we're going to solve it or have all the answers here today, but at least we can start with understanding the basic truth. Jihad's the problem. We'll be right back. Let's be clear. As New Yorkers, our lives revolve around the subways. When we hear of an attack in the subway, it's incredibly unsettling. And let's be also clear, this was an attempted terrorist attack. Thank God the perpetrator did not achieve his ultimate goals. 
Thank God our first responders were there so quickly to address the situation to make sure people were safe. Thank God the only injuries that we know at this point were minor. That's uh, Mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, who in general is a, is a, is a nincompoop, but I can't disagree with anything he said there. Uh, yeah, we got uh, we did get lucky in the terrorists' inability to pull off their plots. There are hundreds, probably thousands of uh, of Americans who are alive uh, today, largely because of the ineptitude of terrorists in doing what they set out to do. Whether it's Farouk Abdul Matalab, the underwear bomber, almost blew an entire airliner out of the sky uh, with over a hundred people in it on Christmas Day back in what was it, two thousand and nine. Uh, and then there was the Times Square bomber, a case that I was pulled into work at the NYPD Intelligence Division, Faisal Shahzad. If he had built a different uh, car bomb, could have killed dozens, maybe hundreds of people, but killed no one because didn't know what he was doing. Thank God. Uh, but I would uh, note that we will not be lucky always. I think it was uh, attributed to the IRA once they said about some of their efforts that the uh, well, you have to be lucky 100% of the time. We only have to be lucky once. Uh, and that, unfortunately, for the ter- from the terrorist perspective, that's true. One uh, more note I wanted to get into here, and that has to do with the, the possibility of radicalization that occurred, because this is going to factor into the discussion about extreme vetting. There's the possibility of radicalization that may have occurred in Bangladesh before the subject or the suspect in this case uh, came to this country. And here's what I, here's what I would say about that. Um, Bangladesh certainly has major jihadist groups operating there. Al Qaeda. There's an Islamic State franchise in Bangladesh. And there have been some pretty underreported terrorist attacks there in recent years, including the the murder of bloggers who have profaned, uh, you know, quote, profaned in the terrorist's view, Islam. And, uh, and there's also, uh, there was a major attack in uh, Dhaka uh, restaurant with 20 people, 20 hostages were killed. So there is extremism in Bangladesh. There is the possibility uh, of Bangladesh... Country we'll talk about maybe more in depth another time. Formerly East Pakistan with the partition of India, uh, but it looks to me like this guy radicalized when he came here. That would be my guess, um, and it has to do with what kind of media he was consuming, social media chat rooms he was in, and but the precondition for jihadism is a belief in Islam, so it comes from within that community, and no one has any answers yet as to how to completely counteract this. Um, I want to bring you up to speed on some other developments in the Mueller investigation that just came in. And uh, we've got a whole lot of show. Judge Roy Moore will talk about that election tomorrow. Also, the media's massive mistake last week. We'll break all that down coming up in just a bit. Stay with me. Buck Sexton back with you here, team. I I want to talk to you about uh, the latest in the Roy Moore election fight. Man, it's getting... I mean, it's it's been very nasty the whole time, but it, this is yeah, we are in the final stage, and it is no holds barred. Um, we will also have a reporter from Alabama joining us to give some 
sense of what it's like in the last leg of that race. And uh, whole country is going to have eyes on that one. Fox News poll conducted on Thursday and just released earlier today put Jones ahead of Moore 10 points, 50 to 40. Nope. Yeah. Tyrone shaking. No, I'm I'm I don't I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Uh, Fox said 8% of voters were undecided and 2% support another candidate. I think, I think this is going to be a a lot of people, a lot of people are maybe a little torn about it, or they just don't want to, they don't want the ire of their, of their friends and, and associates if they go the wrong way on this one. So they're trying to tell the pollster what they think the, what they think they should tell the pollster. Or they're undecided because they just don't want to say out loud that they're like, you know what? I don't care what you guys say about Roy Moore. They're saying they're going to vote for him. I mean, they're going to vote for him anyway. That's what I think. They don't want to say that to the pollster. They're like, yeah, I'm undecided. But actually, a lot of Alabamians or Alabamans, pardon pardon me, my my friends in Alabama. I'm I'm not great on the, uh, the state designation names like that. But a lot of folks from Alabama, there we go. Uh, I think at the end of the day, they're going to say, or the ones who are undecided at least, or who are on the fence, they're going to say, stick with the agenda over what the left wing media says. That's for that. That's a pretty safe bet, right? I think I think so. Um, and uh, I I think I think Roy Moore is going to win. Tyrone, do you think he's going to win? Fairly easily. Tyrone thinks fairly easily. I I agree. I think Roy Moore is going to win. Uh, I wouldn't give a percentage because, you know, that's really hard to get right. But, yeah, I, I would say Roy Moore is going to end up winning this one. So we will see. I'll also talk to you a bit about some of the latest uh, on that on that race. Coming up, though, like I said, we'll have a reporter from Alabama. I, I did want to spend a little bit of time because later on we're going to talk to uh, Joe Concha from The Hill and just have, a, just have an all-in – you know, battle royale media conversation about what's been going on. I mean, the last week was just terrible for the mainstream media. It was awful for them. There's no way around it. Just retracted story after retracted story, massive correction after massive correction, reporters getting disciplined, maybe getting fired. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And the one bit of connective tissue between all of it, the one thing that unites so many of these mistakes is anti-Trump reporting. Isn't that so strange? You know, I, I would note that, yes, there were the fake there were the fake National Guard documents used to try and prevent George W. Bush from becoming president. But I don't remember news reports suggesting that there was evidence of treason or an espionage conspiracy about George W. Bush that then had to be retracted over and over and over again. There's clearly something wrong. And the media saying that they don't think there's anything wrong shows that they are deluded. They are delusional on this issue. They are not dealing in the realm of rationality. They have lost it. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, whom I got to say, she throws down, you know, she does not, they do not push her around up there at that podium. And she is, you know, not to, not to be mean, after his departure, but she she is much more uh, forceful and effective than uh, Sean Spicer was up there, I think. So uh, I think Spicer was caught between trying to establish a rapport with the media, but also defend Trump. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders is just like, she's like, you know, 
Who wants to bring it? Who's next? You know, it's like the guy who walks into a bar. She's a gal. I'm not saying that, you know, but I'm just saying like the guy who walks in a bar who's like, you know, I'll take any man in the room. That's she's the gal who walks in the bar and is like, I'll take anyone in the room. You know, that's that's kind of it's kind of approach. I got to say, I like it. I got to say, I like it. Uh, so here's what she said about this notion of, of, of fake news, which gets what's just look, it's a very important topic because it affects every every other story that we're discussing here. I would just say, sir, that, that journalists make honest mistakes and that doesn't make them fake news. But uh, the question that well, I when have, journalists make honest mistakes, they should own up to them. Uh, sometimes and a lot of times you don't. But there's a difference. There's a very big. I'm sorry. I'm not finished. There's a very big difference between making honest mistakes and purposefully misleading the American people. Something that happens regularly. You can't say I'm not done. You cannot say you cannot say that. It's an honest mistake when you're purposely putting out information that you know to be false or when you're taking information that hasn't been validated, that hasn't been uh, offered any credibility and that has been continually denied by a number of people, including people with direct knowledge of an instance. This is something uh, that I'm speaking about the number of reports that have taken place over the last couple of weeks. I'm simply stating that there should be a certain level of responsibility in that process. I, I, I think she is spot on. There should be a certain level of responsibility in that process, and the media won't take any real responsibility for it. You know, this is where you, you get into a bit of the of the nuance here, right? I, sure, ABC, CNN, these other organizations that have gotten uh, have gotten their hands burned recently. You know, their their fingers up on the stove. They're not trying to run fake facts all the time because. People go to news for information. The very basic facts have to now they're not always, but they have to try and make them accurate. And for reasons of self-preservation, they have to at least be accurate on the facts. But when it comes to editorial decisions, anonymous sources, what what stories to run, what stories not to run, how to cover them, all of that. That's where the bias comes in. And that's why when asked when asked where the bias may be. And 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 how we can prove it? There's bias. There is one story after another that is negative for the Trump administration that is wrong. If if in fact this were an honest effort and it wasn't just a take Trump down, never Trump hashtag resistance media, wouldn't they have at some point a story that says you know when they run with a story based on a, a source or an anonymous source that says you know Mueller's investigation is almost over and they've got nothing on Trump. Wouldn't you have heard something like that at some point? Maybe. Maybe. No. Nothing like that ever comes out. And nothing like that ever comes out because the media is agenda driven. And I'm actually not somebody who opposes the notion of an agenda driven media. I'm an opinion journalist. I don't like the term journalist, really. I don't know. I'm an opinion analyst, really. But I'm honest about it. I say what I think. I say what I believe. You know where I come from. And... Places like CNN are still clinging to this fiction of we're not advocacy journalists. I mean, just go down the go down their nightly lineup, right? They're all that was Jim Acosta in that exchange. He's a CNN reporter who's blatantly and obviously anti-Trump. Uh, he tweets out stuff that is snide and disrespectful to the president. I mean, he's blatantly an anti-Trump quote reporter, 
But you go through CNN, you go through their whole lineup. Anderson Cooper, anti-Trump. Aaron Burnett, anti-Trump. Don Lemon, anti-Trump. I mean, how much of this do we have to do? Do you think that if CNN executives or CNN anchors were to sit down and try to answer these questions, what would they say? Oh, no, no, we're just we're just reporting, you know, we they're not anti-Trump or they're not opposed to the Trump administration. Come on. Do you think they could say it to somebody with a straight face? No, but they'll never put themselves in a position where they have to answer real questions. But it's damaging. And we saw recently with the fake ABC, with the fake news, ABC, Brian Ross reported hurt the stock market. I mean, the notion that this country is about to lose a very effective and very good for the economy president is unsettling and would be really damaging to this country. And these reporters just put it out there like they're, you know, like they're determined or like they're trying to predict the, the weather tomorrow. Oh, you know, we're off by a few degrees. Now, the stakes here are really high. And the kinds of mistakes that have been made recently. Keep in mind, <laughs> OK, let's just pull two of them out, right? The ABC uh, Brian Ross report and the recent CNN report on Donald Trump Jr. Both of those involved major news organizations running stories that, if true, they thought would have been essentially lights out for the administration. Clear collusion with Russia to win the election in advance of the election. And in the case of the Trump Jr. story, it's via WikiLeaks, but WikiLeaks being a cutout, but that that would be just irreparably damaging to the administration. How could you get them so wrong? How could you run with that story? I mean, you better be darn sure, right? Same reason why when I sit here and I talk to you about, this is a much, you know, this is a very different issue, but talk to you about the sexual harassment stories. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stuff. I've heard rumors, but it's not just because, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get sued that I don't sit here and tell you the rumors. It also would be irresponsible. It'd be unfair of me to name people that I don't know and I couldn't verify have engaged in egregious sexual harassment conduct in the media business right that would be wrong for because there would be consequences for them and for me but the media just runs with this stuff like it's no big deal and that tells you a lot about their mentality doesn't it you're gonna tell me they couldn't they couldn't figure out whether the dates were wrong in in both cases it was about dates could you imagine if the stories didn't involve the abc brian ross story and the cnn story about trump jr if there weren't emails, if there weren't dates, numbers, hard figures to work with here, if it was just based on anonymous sourcing, they would have kept going with it. The only reason they had to retract it is because it was going to come out and they were going to look terrible. So let's not pretend that this is somehow a function of their honesty, which I know some are doing now. Uh, it is just blatant uh, dishonesty on display. And for every story they have to retract because it is factually disprovable, there are countless stories that can never be disproven because it's innuendo, rumors based on anonymous sources about what may happen in the future. And by the time the future happens, we all forget what the story was. But it's just feeding a narrative. So destructive and so dishonest. I mean, that, look, if nothing else, Trump is at war with the mainstream media and he's winning. And that's incredible for a lot of us sitting here, uh, a lot of us sitting here thinking about what's going on with this administration. It is amazing that this guy with no political experience or background whatsoever has taken on the mainstream media in an election and as a candidate, and he is 
beating them. In fact, so far, it's really a rout. So for all the you know imperfections of the administration and the the legitimate criticisms of it that I would have here or there, I never I never lose sight of the big picture, which is that we have a a propaganda apparatus in this country that calls itself honest, fair, true, and forthright. And it is time that someone took them to task, and Trump is doing it. He has forced them out of the, you know, they're being forced out of the woodwork. It is time for us to see what's really going on here. We're seeing it. And if nothing else, that's a very valuable service to the American people. All right, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. What do you think about all this? What do you think about the Judge Moore election tomorrow, everybody? I know you must have some thoughts on that. Let me know. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton here with you. We are talking about, well, we've talked about this hour, the terrorist attack in New York City, the attempted suicide bombing uh, right near Times Square in a subway tunnel. Uh, and we also have been getting into the latest of the fake news wars that are going on. Ed in Ohio on WHLO wants to chat. What's up, Ed? Uh, yes, sir. Mr. Sexton, um, two comments here. Your observation about people from all over the world live in New York City, and this, uh, what was his name, Isaiah Ula? Yeah. Uh, how would he justify killing his fellow Muslims? And uh, my platoon sergeant in the reserves made a comment about how the Muslim world allied themselves with Hitler in World War II because of his hatred for the Jews. And yeah, that's, yeah the, the Mufti, Hitler, the Grand Mufti in Jerusalem. The Grand Mufti in Jerusalem uh, did uh, did ally with Hitler, was uh, in, in cahoots with Hitler. And as to your initial question, and by the way, how many people have heard that story about the Grand Mufti, right? You don't hear a lot of that. Uh, and I then heard on, about the Grand Mufti, but I, I know the, the Muslims did ally themselves with Hitler, but I, I did hear about the Grand Mufti, but I, I never heard that proclamation. Right, well, anyway, the, the, uh, the first part of your question, though, on... Uh, how Muslims can kill fellow Muslims, it's actually something that uh, that exists in jihadist circles where they will say that if you don't agree with them, uh, then you are, meaning if you're a Muslim who does not uh, subscribe to their version of Islam, to the jihadi version of Islam, you're considered a, a kufar, you're considered a non-believer. So you were therefore so it would out. be like a Catholic killing an Episcopalian. It's it's kind of like a carte blanche to uh, to excommunicate somebody from the faith and then kill them. And there's also uh -huh. within jihadist circles the idea that let's say let's say for example a suicide bomber in Iraq in a marketplace kills a a fellow jihadist who happens to be walking through the market who is planning to be a suicide bomber the next day. Well, what they tell themselves is that oh well he is a martyr. For the cause, and so then he'll go straight to heaven and and the and get the virgins and all the rest of it, right? So if you're right. killed by proxy, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so if you're killed in the process of a of a righteous mujahideen martyrdom operation, and you are a jihadi and you're doing your part, then you go, you know, you go straight to to paradise. If you're killed and you're a non-believer, and by the way, you should note that this isn't really a consistent, but you know they don't care about consistency. These guys are barbarians. Uh, if you're killed as a Muslim who is a, a peaceful, law-abiding, uh, you know, everyday Muslim, well, you weren't part of the jihad, so you're as bad as a non-believer. You're actually kind of a collaborator with what would be called the people of the book, which would be Christians and, and Jews, and so you can be killed for that, right? So, so they have a rationalization 
yeah. for for killing because they kill more Muslims. I mean, this is important for everybody to know. Jihadists kill more Muslims than any other group. Right. There are more Muslims that are dying because guys are yelling Allahu Akbar and hitting suicide vest plungers than any other group out there. Uh, now, a big part of that is obviously proximity and the you know internecine struggles going on in these different states, but should be kept in mind. And that's why uh, allies in the Islamic world are, are so important. Right. I mean, the Kurds have been fighting against these maniac Kurds or Muslims. They've been fighting against these maniacs very effectively for a long time. But, yeah, so it has to do with and it's called takfir. Uh, these guys who declare other Muslims outside the faith are takfiri, and that's that's how all this stuff works. So there's a there's a doctrine, if you will, of slaughtering fellow Muslims that jihadists use. All right, what? that's what. Uh, uh, well, thank you, Ed. Hopefully, I uh, answered that question. Um, hold on a second. Alabama's uh, more just real quick. This is what he said about recently about the allegations. Lee Korfman and uh, Beverly Young Nelson have come forward with serious allegations. You have said that you did not know them or had no encounter with them. That's my understanding. I did not know them. I had no encounter with them. I never molested anyone. And for them to say that, I don't know why they're saying it, but it's not true. All right, there you go. Judge Moore saying it's all lies. The election is tomorrow. What's going on in Alabama? We will update you on that pivotal Senate race and who's going to win tomorrow and what will it mean? That's coming up right after the break. Buck Sexton here with you and a huge Senate election tomorrow. We will find out who the next senator from Alabama will be. Is it Roy Moore or Doug Jones? To bring us some on the ground perspective now, we've got Jim Faherty on the line. He is an anchor at News Radio 105.5. W-E-R-C in Birmingham, Alabama. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey there, Buck. Good to be with you. All right, so tell me, man, you're down there. You're hearing it. You're seeing it. You're living it. What is going on in this Alabama Senate race as we approach the final stretch? I hear robocalls, all kinds of dirty tricks. What's happening? We sure do, Buck. A lot of uh, activity happening tonight. Uh, Both of the candidates are holding rallies. Uh, Republican Roy Moore is appearing with former White House strategist Steve Bannon. Uh, Democrat Doug Jones is uh, holding a rally with Charles Barkley. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, the presidential robocalls are going out. Uh, We have uh, President Trump making robocalls on behalf of more. Former President Obama doing the same uh, for for Doug Jones. And uh, those calls are going out today to voters across the state. Jim, what are you hearing about the the polls right now? I mentioned one from Fox News before, but is this supposed to be a neck-and-neck race right now? Well, uh, we did receive a batch of late polls uh, today. Most of the polls showed more with an advantage. Uh, The margin ranged from a few points to as many as nine. Uh, The one outlier was the Fox News poll, which had Jones up by ten. And uh, then if you uh, look at the, the real clear politics uh, average of polls, it showed a, uh, a more edge of about two points. So uh, a lot of conflicting information out there. Of course, the, the big variable uh, is uh, the turnout, which is uh, a little bit of an unknowable since we're kind of in some uncharted territory uh, because of the unique circumstances of this being a special election uh, right smack dab in the middle of the month of December. So uh, a lot of folks wondering how that's going to look when those numbers start coming in tomorrow night. Uh, we'll find out who was able to turn out their voters. What are you hearing from those uh, in, in your state in Alabama 
who are not decided yet, are, are they trying to figure out whether they believe the allegations against Moore still, or are they just trying to determine what the uh, most politically advantageous thing for them to do as a voter is based upon the agenda they would like to see enacted? Well, it's interesting. I think a lot of the Republican voters have been processing this information uh, ever since the Washington Post dropped it uh, last month. And uh, there's been lots of discussion, lots of debate about it. But uh, the consensus among Republican voters, and of course, we can't lose sight of the fact that this is a very Republican, very conservative state, and uh, the voters have been discussing this, have been analyzing it, and the feeling seems to be that the Republican voters are not putting a lot of stock in these allegations, uh, which date back as long as 40 years ago. Uh, the voters are keenly aware that there is a narrow majority in the Senate. President Trump is very popular in Alabama. There is a strong desire on the part of Republican voters in this state to see the president's agenda enacted. And there are concerns uh, that a Democratic victory in this Senate race would impede uh, the president getting his agenda passed. Jim, what can you tell us about the mechanics of this tomorrow? Polls open when, close when, and any other variables you're expecting? 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, lots of absentee votes have already been cast. Uh, they have been coming in uh, to the state capitol. And uh, after 7 o'clock central time tomorrow night, uh, we will uh, await uh, the, the numbers uh, coming in uh, from uh, Montgomery, the state capitol. And, of course, uh, all eyes and all ears will be on Alabama as that process unfolds. Jim Faraday is an anchor at News Radio 105.5 WERC down in Birmingham, Alabama. Jim, great stuff tonight. We hope you can join tomorrow and keep us up to speed with everything happening in this Senate race. Great to be with you, Buck. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, so yeah, producer Amy, Tyrone, let's get let's get uh, Jim to see if he can join tomorrow because we're going to be on we're going to be on air here in the hut when those results come in. That's going to be interesting. Uh, I know we've already said, I, I asked Tyrone before, and we've already put out there that we believe that Moore will probably uh, pull this one out. Uh, it's going to be very interesting from the commentary at what the, what the reactions to this might be. Uh, the, I think there are a lot of Republicans, a lot of Republicans in the media, some former never-Trumpers who are more anti-Moore than any Democrats that I've seen yet, which is a pretty amazing thing to say, but I, I think it's true. Uh, we are at a place right now where this has really become about the fracture within the GOP as much as it is about the Democrat versus Republican aspect of this. And look, Trump Trump has has been he's been supportive. He's had the robo he's got the robocalls out there. Uh, I I think that's going to be a major a major factor here in the final stretch it looks to me like they're going to just have enough to to get over get over the edge here and have Roy Moore win and look i i feel like for a lot of folks and i've been reading all your messages about this and we've, uh, we've taken a tremendous number of phone calls uh, on air over the weeks about the Roy Moore case specifically the, the consensus i get from a lot of you down in Alabama and, and i know we have a a really uh, robust hardy and and very much uh, appreciated Alabama contingent that listens to the show, Alabama team buck, is that, you know, the 
the stories that I've been told about Roy Moore, the allegations against him um, are still all both unproven and denied by the candidate and to give up this. I'm just trying to channel what I have been picking up from all of you. But I think the consensus opinion that I've I've heard from the Alabamans who are listening to the show is that they don't want to possibly throw a wrench into the entire Trump and Republican agenda because of the possibility that Judge Moore uh, uh, engaged in uh, reprehensible conduct some four decades ago. Um, that that seems to be what I what I have. Uh, that, that seems to be where a lot of you are, and I know I know I know some of you are certainly there because you've told me explicitly. But I think if I had to try and assess what the the as much as there can be a consensus on these things, uh, what what the uh, dominant narrative is that I'm hearing, it's that is that you and also I, I know that people are approaching this and I completely understand there is a, an issue here of life um, of Doug Jones being a pro-abortion zealot. And if this, you know, you think of it in that context and what it would mean to get through any kind of Republican legislation that would uh, limit late term abortions or that would 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 save lives of the unborn you've got a a very uh compelling moral argument uh, for not pulling the lever for a democrat there at least some of you may go third party look it's going to be or or write in i should say not third party uh it's going to be a very interesting night tomorrow we will be here with you live on the show as we talk about it so uh, we will have the results for you as they happen here in the Freedom Hut. So I'm I'm looking forward to having you all with me tomorrow on that. And uh, I, I want to, by the way, just take a break here to get into some policy. I want to talk to you about Obamacare for a few minutes because we're going into the end of the year, and I had a great, uh, I have a great uh, interviewee to join us. Um, so we're going to talk about Obamacare, and then a little more on the media from Joe Concha, and also the victory over ISIS with Iraq. Got a packed show. Stay with me. So the reports of the Republican Party's demise or the Trump agenda's demise are, are greatly exaggerated, as we've been talking about here on the show. Uh, but I, I do want to focus us as well on the policy going forward. It's not enough to just say that things are going to get better. Uh, we have to talk about how they could be made better because the administration is not defeated, as we know, but has a lot of work to do, a lot of promises to keep. And high on that list is the repeal and replacement or something about Obamacare. And to talk to us about that, we've got an expert in studio with us here at the Hoover Institution, Dr. Scott Atlas, who's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he's also the author of Restoring Quality Healthcare, a six-point plan for comprehensive reform at lower cost. Important stuff. Dr. Atlas, great to have you. Nice to be here. All right, so I know you, you've been telling me there is a, a disconnect in healthcare right now in the national across-the-board discussion between what people want, by and large, and what Congress is trying to do right now. Tell me about this. Well, the real disconnect is that the policymakers in Congress are focused on getting people insurance and by any cost, whether that is uh, subsidizing the price of insurance or changing a tax code or whatever. And the reality is that insurance is a secondary thing. The primary thing that determines access to care and quality of care is the price of medical care. 
My point is that the Congress uh, reforms should be focused on getting the price of care down by getting rid of barriers to competition, getting rid of the bad incentives that we have in place right now. Once the price of care comes down via competition, quality goes up and access goes up and insurance premiums, by the way, also come down. The cost of insurance comes down because the main reflector of insurance cost is the price of medical care itself. If all you do is focus on getting people insurance, you're propping up a bad system, the one that we have right now, which is filled with bad incentives. So we know that, for instance, when insurance covers every penny out of your pocket or minimizes out-of-pocket payment, no one cares about the price of the, of the, of the medical care itself. And so you don't neither know nor even ask about what the price is, and therefore you're propping up high prices. And the same thing goes with the tax code, et cetera. I think that that's become a public perception problem as well, though. You have a lot of individuals who have gotten used to, those who have good plans, employer-provided plans with good benefits, have, a, have an idea in their heads that they, they will pay a very small amount for doctor's visits, for procedures, and that someone else is going to handle everything else. And that seems to be the overriding promise right now in healthcare in this country is that someone else is going to pay, as you say, bad incentives, propping up a bad system. How do we transition from a world in which politicians can promise that somebody else will pay into a world in which we see that, one, that's not true and not sustainable, and two, if we had price sensitivity with regard to health care, if people had to care about where their dollars were going, it would actually be better for them in the long run. Well, that's absolutely right. That's the whole point. We need to get rid of the hyper-regulated state that uh, Obamacare continued and increased, but although it didn't initiate it. The, these regulations and bad incentives in health insurance, where very few uh, dollars were paid out of pocket and therefore you didn't care about price, were there before Obamacare. It's just that Obamacare doubled down on it with increasing the kind of regulations on the mandates of what's covered, uh, on minimizing the availability of very high deductible care. And what I want to do is shift the payment into a system where people have options for cheaper uh, insurance at, at a higher deductible, meaning they pay more out of pocket. They get what you said, price sensitivity. They should care what their money uh, is getting. Value-based decisions are made in every other part of life. We, we have cheaper computers. The, f the phone in your pocket that's really a, almost a supercomputer these days doesn't cost tens of thousands of dollars, and that's not because the government has subsidized its price. It's because there's competition for consumers who are actually paying and therefore care about the price. We need to get rid of the regulations that shield the information and the concern about price of care. We need to get uh, that through higher deductible plans. And with those cheaper insurance plans, which people want, by the way, you also increase health savings accounts so that people have the cash and therefore and change the regulations so that they actually keep the money uh, and even turn it over to people who survive them when they die. And when they keep the money, they have a motivation to care about not spending the money. There's no reason that you shouldn't care about the value of the medical care you're getting. Is there a component of the discussion that should also include, and when we talk about reforming health care, and we have Dr. Scott Atlas with us here. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford University. Is there a part of this that should be, uh, it should involve Dr. Atlas 
that individuals need to understand that if we're going to have a health care market that is based upon personal choice and personal responsibility, that also then means that issues like community rating, that your lifestyle choices, that your previous health, not notwithstanding pre-existing conditions that are a lifelong issue that someone's born with or develops, but that you're going to have to have older people paying more, people who have a certain history of uh, smoking or alcohol abuse. These are all what would come into play in an actual insurance market. They have been largely taken out of the insurance market now. You have the young subsidizing the older. You have the sick subsidizing the healthy. Is that something that we should address, or is that now just the way it's going to be? No, you're absolutely right. There's been a distortion of uh, the risk factors and the use of insurance that are normally taken into account when you actually price insurance. Yeah, and this is five, destructive. If I five speeding tickets, my insurance is going up, Absolutely. Right? And in the healthcare market now, it's, hey, five speeding tickets, everybody, you know, it happens. Absolutely right. And what, what Obamacare did, for instance, is that they shifted, un- uh, you know, in an extra way, the burden to healthy people by minimizing the impact of age and and making something called essentially a guaranteed issue, which is you shouldn't bother to get insurance because you don't need to until you're already sick. And that is the genesis of this so-called death spiral of insurance, where the only people that are, are insured are actually super sick. Therefore, they're very costly to the insurance uh, companies and the insurance pool itself. Therefore, the insurance premiums skyrocket. Therefore, healthier people won't buy the insurance. And it's a cycle so that all the insurers go out of business. And this is what we have with Obamacare. But you're, ab- you're absolutely right. You have to, you, you are allowed to change, uh, the price of insurance, by the way, if you smoke. But you should also be uh, impacted if you have another major lifestyle choice, which is obesity. We know that there's a massive amount of added medical care for smokers, but it's actually exceeded by obesity. And so if you can charge people more who are voluntarily smoking uh, extra insurance, you should also have that kind of uh, potential to charge people more for other lifestyle choices that add to health costs like obesity. And there's another major part of this, if I may. It's not just about the structure of insurance. It's also about the supply of medical care. There are massive barriers to competition that have been put in place uh, in sort of a monopolistic way by the medical side of things. In other words, the, the, for instance, the, the number of graduates from medical school has plateaued for over 40 years Okay, there's an intentional restriction of supply to avoid competition among doctors. There's a massive uh, effort needed to increase the number of people trained in training programs and and specialties. There's also uh, a restriction of uh, practice uh, by people who could do primary care at a cheaper level, like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Doctors don't generally want that because that competition lowers the price of care. We need to get that uh, competition introduced into healthcare just like it is in every other good or service that we buy. Yeah, doctors want to be able to write a prescription for Zithromax in three minutes and get paid $300 for the visit, <laughs> which right now is unfortunately well, driving up the expense for a lot of us that want to go, especially if you don't have insurance. Well, I... I but again, like that, that's the, that's sort of a, the problem there. You said, especially if you don't have insurance. I, I think that you need to expose people to understanding that healthcare is not free and nothing is free. It costs money. And if you shield them from the price of these things, 
uh, you're going to artificially elevate the consumption of health care and, in fact, minimize the competition. And you, it's harmful to consumers. So uh, well, you'd go see the nurse if you could pay 50 bucks to get the same prescription. Well, and it's not so much about prescription. It's really about the very what I call uh, very uh, simple primary care things that uh, you don't need an MD degree to take blood pressure, to renew prescriptions that are routine, to do a kind of a well, well baby or well person checkups, to look at somebody who has the flu. And in fact, it turns out that there's data on this. This is not just an assertion by me. We know from the outpatient clinics that are staffed by nurse uh, practitioners and physicians assistance that the results for these very simple primary care things are equal to MDs doing them, and they're significantly less costly. And there's high patient satisfaction, by the way. Well, we're going to send this to maybe Paul Ryan and some of the other folks in D.C. Hope, hope they'll listen to it. Uh, maybe they'll actually have some ideas for healthcare legislation that would make things better. Dr. Scott Atlas of the Hoover Institution, great to have you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Look, reporters, journalists make mistakes. Our record as journalists in covering this Trump story and the Russian story is pretty good, especially con- uh, compared to the record of Donald Trump uh, and his uh, serial line. I think there is a, a suspension of belief and reasonable looking at how the media does its job on both sides. People are looking for information that reinforces what they already believe instead of the best obtainable version of the truth. Most of the media really tries the mainstream media, the big news institutions from the Washington Post and the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to CNN really go out of their way to be accurate, factual, contextual. Uh, And we do, and we've done a pretty good job of it. I would say, by and large, an excellent job of it in terms of the facts of this hugely complicated story. Wrong, wrong, wrong. I mean, how much wrong can one reporter get into a rant there? How much stuff can one guy say that you're just like, no way? That was Carl Bernstein saying that they're actually doing a good job when it comes to the Russia collusion investigation and the reporting on it. That is absolute nonsense. Uh, But to to talk a bit about the media's coverage of all this, we got Joe Concha on the line now. He's a media reporter and columnist for The Hill. Joe, great to have you, sir. Fuck, you're as busy as I am these days, it appears. I'm trying, man. I mean, it's it's tough to to keep up with the Concha, but, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Tell me a bit here, sir, about what you think about Bernstein's little monologue there, because... I've said this before. Uh, there's a bunch of ways we could frame this. One, uh, there are no stories that are pro-Trump that ever have to be retracted. That never happens. There's never a like Trump's on the precipice of some agreement that would be great with Democrats or anyone else. Oh, psych, that didn't happen. Also, there are I can't remember any stories from the Obama administration that basically would have ended Obama's presidency that they were like, oh, yeah, that was totally false. You Hit the nail on the head. What, what can I really add to that? You're exactly right. What, when are we going to see one positive leak story on the Trump administration? It just doesn't happen. But I, I, Carl Bernstein, okay, uh, that, that's one thing. I always compared Carl Bernstein. You ever remember Simon and Garfunkel from the 70s? Kind of. I was not born. They were a big, they were a big duo, okay? And, yeah, the guy uh, with the poofy hair. I respect poofy hair. Poofy hair was Garfunkel, and right. in the end, you don't want to be Garfunkel. Paul Simon's the b- bigger of the two names. That's, that's Bernstein. I'm sorry, that's Woodward. 
Woodward is Simon. Garfunkel is Bernstein. In other words, Woodward, I think, is still very objective. He's sober in his analysis. Said this, he told the media at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, this is not the time to be smug. Uh, you're making mistakes, and while we're not fake news, you're, you guys got to shape up, too. Uh, Carl Bernstein just got completely to the left and will defend media to the end, even in a situation like this. But David Frum, who was a former speechwriter for uh, George W. Bush. He oh, oh wait, 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 wait. Hold up, Joe. We got that clip. We're going to play it for you, and then you can tell us about it. Please do. The mistakes are precisely the reason that people should trust the media. Look, huh. astron- astronomers make mistakes all the time because science is a process of discovery of truth. Astrologers never make mistakes, or at least they never own up to them, because what they're offering is a closed system of ideology and propaganda. Meanwhile, from the president and his supporters, you hear a system of of lies. So they're not well-placed to complain, uh, because the, the mistakes occur in the process of exposing the lies, that the liars then complain about the mistakes so, Joe, we, we should trust the media more, he starts out with, because they make these huge mistakes. I, you can't make this stuff up. This is like the government where failure just requires more money. There's a, there's a line around water skis and sharks and jumping over them here, right? Except this, this clears the entire ocean, what David Frum just said. And, and you're watching the show, and, and, and you see Brian Stelter and Carl Bernstein just shaking their heads so pensively, like, oh, boy, that is some pretty deep stuff. I mean, come on, man. I mean, it, it, look... Last week was one of the worst weeks ever for our political media because so many different major outlets made so many huge mistakes, and they all had three things in common, Buck. One, we saw that these were all pertaining to Russia, okay? Two, to our point earlier, they're all profoundly negative to the Trump administration. Three, not only all based on unnamed sources, or in Brian Ross's case, an unnamed source, but also poorly vetted sources. I mean, CNN went ahead with a story that was read to them by two different sources. In other words, they didn't ask for the document that was being read from, which basically said that Donald Trump Jr. received WikiLeaks documents after they were in the public domain. They trusted whoever their source was, which I would imagine is probably a political operative or a lawmaker. It's no innocent type of whistleblower. Uh, and, and they ate it up and they ran with it. And the Washington Post two hours later said, oh no, we got the email right here and your, your story's wrong. It's this rush to get everything out and this love of the narrative, like seagulls at the beach, you feed them anything. It could be, it could be grade A dog food or it could be a sirloin steak and, and the seagulls and the media just eat it up because they love the narrative too much and there's no accountability for the most part outside of Brian Ross, as far as I could see. We got Joe Concha of The Hill, where he is a media reporter. TheHill.com is where he go for his latest and Joe Concha TV is his Twitter handle. How recommend you give him a follow joe uh glenn greenwald no conservative but who is one of those lefties who is willing to call out his own side which is which is a, a rarity i think wrote a piece in the intercept where he was just saying there needs to be a full airing of how that cnn story yep. was so wrong because not only did cnn get it wrong for a long time but they will take no disciplinary action. And there are other news organizations that ran with it, too, who are presumably all hearing from the same source. How can multiple sources get the date wrong on a story where the entire story is based on the date, Joe? CBS and NBC, to your point, verified the CNN story. What does that mean? They all went to the same person or persons and said, is this true? Now, let's let's unpack this. Who would possibly have any sort of motivation to weaponize false information like that? And you say, well, they corrected the story, CNN did, and then CBS and NBC did as well. Right? And you say, all right, no big deal, they corrected. No, no harm here. I point you to Jim Shudo's 
Twitter account. He's a national security correspondent for CNN. And he tweeted out the, the story when CNN got the exclusive, and it, it was the false version of it, of course. And that got 2,300 retweets and 3,300 likes. Then when the story was corrected, Shudo tweeted out rightly, oh, no, 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 the, the story was wrong, and uh, this is actually uh, the, the correct story. Now many retweets that got? 52! <laughs> I'm not very good at math, but I'm pretty sure that that's 98% lower of the people that saw the false tweet. So that's the problem. Even when they correct, the allegation goes around the world 100 times before the exoneration is even seen, if it's even seen at all. And, and, and I think that these sources, so to speak, these people that were probably in the Democratic uh, side that heard Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony to them and before the uh, Democratic, uh, before the Intelligence Committee, excuse me, which is obviously both parties, somebody from that particular interview leaked that out. Gee, I wonder who that could be. So yeah, those sources need to be burned. I couldn't agree with Glenn Greenwald more, but I think that these news organizations are afraid that it might be a bigger name than maybe we're expecting, and then congressional hearings start and so on, and they lose their guy that's probably been feeding them some, some false stories from the very beginning of the Trump administration and will continue to because no one wants to reveal who that person or persons are. Joe, I, I want to give you a, I want to put out a theory and we'll test yeah. this one with you, okay? And because because I would like to give these major media organizations, look, I used to work at CNN. I know a lot of people over there. I want to give them a little bit of credit here because okay. I, I, th I think they're more likely cynical than stupid. And what I mean by that is these fake news stories, and, and that is what they are. We can argue about how intentional they are. But I always say, just like in criminal statute, there is a criminal state of mind. And then there's also recklessness. I think that they're reporting is recklessly damaging to Trump, and they're reckless in how they do it. Therefore, they are culpable for it as fake news. Not everyone wants to make the jump with me on that, but that's fine. But my theory is that they recognize that this is good for business, their audience wants to hear it, and in the end, it won't actually bite them. I think they figure they can get away with it as long as they bring Trump down. They get all the tweets, they get all the clicks, they're anti-Trump, their audience knows it, and yeah, if they have to fix it, they've already gotten the boost. If you look at people there, and I, I, I agree with everything you said, uh, like an Anna Navarro, right, who is on... The worst pundit on TV, day. I think, by the way. I'll put that out there. She can call me and yell at me anytime she wants. I think she may be the worst pundit on television. Go ahead. <laughs> well, she knows exactly how to play the game. Say something as provocative as possible. Uh, make the most personal attacks that you can. Even attack the people that you're on the air with personally, right? And not offer anything up in terms of solutions or really anything resembling a compelling thought and you will get more and more airtime. If you were to say something positive about the Trump administration within CNN in terms of uh, opinion, punditry, or even reporting, let's say, I don't know, the economy, where there's two straight quarters of 3% GDP growth or unemployment's at a 17-year low or the stock market's here and manufacturing jobs are way up, that doesn't get you a gold star over there amongst your peers, amongst your bosses. So you've got to try to go as negative as possible. So I think there's a peer pressure over there to outdo the other guy or girl in terms of being as negative towards the president as possible so you can be uh, get the adulation of, of your peers over there. So I think peer pressure has just as much to do with uh, an ideological uh, difference with the president. Well, I'm not trying to butter you up here, Mr. Concha, but I completely agree. And I would say that reasonable voices are often marginalized over there from the right, and I have had personal experience with this, because you either have to go on TV and say just really immaturely nasty things or, you know, immature nasty things about Donald Trump, or you have to go on TV and be like, you know, well, I, I like Donald Trump because I'm an idiot. I mean, that's basically, <laughs> those are the only two kinds of conservatives they really want on television over there. 
they're all characters in a play. And, uh, you know, I, I hear this charge level that Fox is state media, state media, state media. They all, they all support Trump. From what I can see, because we're, we're on that network a little bit, I hear plenty of people that are critical of the president. Yeah, yep. Fox and Friends likes him fine. Hannity likes him fine. But then there are just as many people over there that are never Trumpers or people that just disagree with him on policy or the way he goes about the way he communicates, uh, which makes for more interesting conversation in the end. So while CNN's business is good in terms of ad revenue, the ratings are horrific. I mean, they're, they're a distant third. They can't even get a million viewers. CNN, can you imagine that? A million viewers in prime time, while Fox usually in and even Rachel Maddow gets more like three or four million. So I guess business is good. But if you're not doing well under a Trump administration where every day is unpredictable and the news cycle changes so fast and it's so crazy, then, then you've got problems if you're not making money here. They could be doing a lot better if they just went back to the old CNN. Can uh, I just ask you a, a real quick question before we let you go, Joe? And that is, yeah. uh, I, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Ryan Lizza, a fellow, is he a fellow media reporter? Or am I getting him confused with the Saliza guy? I, I, I can never keep it straight. But Ryan Lizza is out at the politics editor at large at CNN. Uh, Lizza is a New York Magazine Washington correspondent, so he's not a media guy. Um, but yeah, he just got fired. But this is very interesting under sexual harassment uh, claims. He says that this was a consensual relationship that he had with a woman. He treated her very respectfully. He's, he totally disagrees with the New Yorker's decision. This isn't like, eh, maybe I did something wrong or I don't remember. He is outright saying this is ridiculous. This is a relationship I had with someone. So, but he's I, I look. I, I hope he makes his case a little bit publicly if that's true because i've been worried about this for a while we're going to start to get into like you know office relationship or even you know industry relationship goes bad and all of a sudden people are getting fired for it or any political candidate you want to take out then enough money can can be put behind someone to to make sure that happens i've I've, and i think most women are telling the truth i mean that's what studies and stats show uh in these cases and uh, many men are that are being accused now are Obviously not uh, not disputing the claims like a Matt Lauer that was a pretty weak you know comeback right and he gets it like yeah I got caught uh, that that sucks or Weinstein or, or Spacey or anybody else but uh, you know in this case I mean he he is steadfast like this is somebody I had a relationship with and and I have no idea where this is coming from and I totally disagree with getting fired so CNN has suspended him as well he's a contributor there and they're going to look into it but. I mean, in this environment, how do you survive this sort of stuff? It, well, it's someone's going to have crazy. to be the first one who stands up and says, I'm sorry, the uh, the machinery doesn't get to just eat me because that's the way things are going. Assuming that he's, you know, not actually a total creepo jerk, which we don't know. But if he's not, I, I hope he stands up and fights. And I hope people of goodwill in the media uh, will be willing to listen to him. And if he was, in fact, not doing anything wrong, I, look, left or right, I don't want innocent people or people losing their careers or anything unless they really deserve something, you know, unless they deserve their comeuppance. So we'll see. Uh, Joe Concha, always fun. We went super long because you're a fun guy to talk to. Thanks for calling in. Wow, a lot of love on this call. Thank you. A lot, indeed, sir. All right, man. Talk to you soon. TheHill.com, everybody. Joe Concha. Uh, All right, team. We, uh, man, there's another, I didn't even have time to get to this. There's another sexual harassment case that's out there right now. And this is somebody that, I don't know, I kind of like. And it makes me sad. Who is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you till after the break. I don't have that much to say on it, but I'll reveal the name and... All right, stay with me. So I told you that we would be talking about somebody here that I, I would not have expected would get caught up in this uh, sexual misconduct allegation for, for no reason other than, I just, you know, it didn't seem shady. I don't know the guy, though. So this isn't a personal thing. It just, but Chef Mario Batali has now gotten uh, himself into some trouble here. Here's what we know. Mario Batali uh, this is from Eater.com. Steps away from restaurant empire following sexual misconduct allegations. Four women have accused the chef of inappropriate touching 
in a pattern of behavior that spans at least two decades, according to dozens of interviews by Eater.com. Uh, and so people, but you know, people are referring to him as I, I didn't, I didn't, Tyrone, did you see the details on this one? People are referring to him as like creepy and icky. Did he, but he, no like Weinstein level stuff, right? Nothing with like plants and public exposure. Closer to Franken. More like a Franken thing. Okay, so he's grabby and gra- But um, particularly grabby, apparently, for, and apparently this is going on for a long time. My wife reads these blind item rumor type things, and she told me about this literally over a month ago. Really? And so this was, was, this was brewing. Because I saw last night somebody was tweeting out, get ready for a chef. And I'm not going to say who. I had some other chefs in mind. Because I, 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 I like chefs. You know, I follow what they do. I feel like it's non-political. Well, once my wife read the blind item, we actually kind of started eliminating chefs based on things. And it was like the only quote-unquote A-lift chef that was left was him, unfortunately. Yeah. Man. You know, but what happened? He can't really be... He, can he be fired? Is there an or you know what I mean? I, I, what's the? I mean, no one's. First of all, no one's accusing him of anything criminal, right? So this is just being. He's being gross and and sexually. There might be some civil suits out of this, from what I understand. And he's stepping away from his company. I guess it just hurts the brand and the restaurants. And unfortunately, I guess all the employees of the restaurants. Yeah. More than it hurts him individually. I mean, as long as he's taking care of his money, just sort of just sad for the women. Wow, he's got a thousand employees. That's a lot. It's a big. It's a big operation that he's he's a part of. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he was one of the first stars from Food Network's Malta Mario. Look, I know chef celebrity chefs are celebrities. They're just people too. I know, but like even the chefs, man. Even the, now, people. I know people who know professional chefs are like, Buck. A lot of them are total maniacs, and and I get you know they're control freaks, and you know you hear these like probably urban legend stories about like a French chef who's like, get out of my kitchen and throws like knives against the wall and freaks out at people. But I feel like that's usually a caricature or maybe it's not. Uh, but it just is, uh, this is everywhere now, man. I mean, now, now it's Hollywood, it's Hollywood politics and even the, the culinary world. It's been in corporate America for a while. So I guess that's not, it's no surprise here. Really. It's just, I didn't think Mario Batali, man, he seemed like he seemed jolly. I know I want to ask you this. I know we don't have that much time left. How long can this go on? Like, you know, Christmas break kind of things slow down. When we come back for 2018, do you think everybody's still firing? Like, you know, just firing on all cylinders? I don't know. I feel like they've probably, at this point, this has been going on for so long that if something hasn't come forward or people haven't come forward, I wonder, you know, why they wouldn't have, right? But but who knows? I just... Yeah, it's uh, and by the way, they've I will say this. They've just scratched the surface of the news media with this. Oh, there's so much more. I don't know if it'll come out, but there's so much more. That's all I can say about it, man. You know, I wish I could start dropping names, but that's not nice because I don't know. I don't know. All right. Yeah, right thank you, Tyrone. Mario Batali, you know, just just wanted to just wanted to learn how to make spaghetti and, and meatballs like that guy. And now here he is having to apologize. Sexual harasser. Uh oh. Um, all right, team, I'm going to talk to you about Iraq and the big victory there against the Islamic State. Why do I think this is important for all of us to talk about in this country? Right after the break, I'll tell you. Stay with me. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Iraq is Fully liberated from the Islamic State, according uh, to the Iraqi military. 
This is Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi on his Twitter account. He wrote today, Our heroic armed forces have now secured the entire length of the Iraq-Syria border. We defeated Daesh, ISIS, through our unity and sacrifice for the nation. Long live Iraq and its people. So here we are now. The, the campaign to beat the Islamic State, in Iraq at least, has come to a close. I think this is getting lost in the shuffle of so many other media stories right now because, look, there's a lot going on. The Roy Moore thing, terrorism in New York City, the uh, sex- the continued sexual harassment revelations that are, are coming out every day and you know, ending people's careers and bringing down titans of media and not yet any titans in politics, but that just give that some time. Uh, so here we have a story that should be told loudly. Uh, we should be making much more of this. Iraq is a case study where a jihadist insurgency and, and really a jihadist army, because that's what the Islamic State was when it first had its blitzkrieg from Syria into Iraq, seizing Mosul and uh, de- defeating on, on the open battlefield military forces that the U.S. had spent the better part of, well, over a decade mentoring. And ISIS was threatening the outskirts at one point of Baghdad. It was threatening Erbil, the capital of the Kurdish region. And we've been fighting and working and trying to do everything that we can to defeat this terrorist entity, including uh, 25,000 coalition airstrikes, three years of... Uh, continued fighting, advising, all kinds of intelligence support, everything else that we would do for an ally here. And now ISIS has lost its last uh, major pocket of control in Iraq. Still got a bit more territory in Syria, and we'll follow up on that later this week. But we should uh, take a moment and, and, first of all, be thankful for the the number is not even clear right now, but maybe 5,000 or so U.S. troops who are in Iraq. You know, the U.S. pilots who are flying those planes, U.S. special forces advisors training and advising and sometimes doing a whole lot more than that on the ground. Um, we should be thankful. And this is their victory as well. Uh, here's what uh, Prime Minister Alabadi said as well today. Dear Iraqis, your land has been completely liberated and your towns and villages have been returned to the homeland. The dream of, liber- of liberation became a reality. ISIS's dream has come to an end. We must remove all its effects and should not allow terrorism to return again. Now, this is the second time that the jihadist cancer has been excised from Iraq. The first time it was through Al-Qaeda, through the, the organization of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and you had the awakening movement and Iraqis rising up and at the village level, village to village, coming together and, and working with uh, U.S. troops, coalition troops as part of the surge to restore some semblance of, of order and security might be too strong a word, but at least the, the, the beginnings of security for the Iraqi people. 
we, we should be pointing out. People talk about messaging. They talk about how do we defeat the global jihad? How do we win in the battlefield of ideas? And I just wish there was more of an effort right now to point at the success in Iraq and say, look, this is the country. And I know many of you who served, many of you who are veterans in Iraq and Afghanistan know exactly what I'm going to say here and exactly what I'm talking about. This is a country that we came into, deposed a dictator, and spent a lot of blood and treasure, but most importantly, our men and women in uniform killed in action and wounded to try and build a better Iraq, to try and free them from tyranny, remove them in a uh, geopolitical sense from the realm of the major threats we were facing post 9-11. And that required a tremendous sacrifice on our part. And you know what? We haven't colonized Iraq. We didn't seize the oil. We weren't there as conquerors. We were in Iraq in the same way that we were in France and Germany and Japan and South Korea. Yeah, people talk about spreading freedom now with the Bush administration, and they say it sarcastically, but that's what we did in Iraq. You now have a government. It is imperfect in Baghdad, no question. It is far too close to Iran. The reliance on Shia militias for security in Iraq is deeply concerning. Our near abandonment of our Kurdish friends when they declared independence bothers me to this day. And that was recent. That was just a few months ago. But you do have an Iraqi government now that has a chance, an Iraqi people that could have a better future, that at least have some hope for autonomy and a say over their own affairs. And that's a great thing. And it's only been possible because of the United States. But let's be serious about this. Let's get down to what really matters here. It's only possible because of men and women who wear the uniform and some civilians who are alongside them in very difficult and dangerous places, stretching back now for 14 years or so, close to it, fighting against evil, fighting against evil in the form of al-Qaeda in Iraq, fighting against evil when it was the Islamic State, and all the other militias and their brutality and their savagery and using chainsaws on people in downtown Baghdad in broad daylight making videos of executions and sawing off heads. And we fought against the worst darkness in Iraq alongside Iraqi allies, and they have prevailed. And it was not clear that would be the case without a major infusion of U.S. troops. And we really did not want to show up again. The uh, American expeditionary force of about 150,000 or so to do all the fighting for the Iraqis. The Iraqis have won an important victory here with a lot of help from us. But it's, a vi it's an enormous victory for us, too, because we didn't have to send in a bunch of Marine expeditionary forces. We didn't have to send in a massive invasion force to beat back the Islamic State. We can work with partners on the ground, whether it's the Iraqi government or in the case of Syria Kurdish allies and other elements of what was the Free Syrian Army to work with them to defeat evil. Make no mistake about it. We saw it on display this morning with that would-be suicide bomber. And I can tell you that many, I know many of you listening, and, and I remember it too, the, the depravity and the evil of the jihadists in Iraq 
was unfathomable. And many of you listening right now, perhaps it was years ago, or perhaps you're listening and you're deployed as we as I speak. Many of you were critical in stopping the head choppers, the mutilators, the torturers, the vile human refuse of the jihadist movements. And there's a big victory today in Iraq, and we should all, one, thank those of you who had served, and also applaud our Iraqi allies on the ground for, for getting the job done. And show that the U.S., we show that the U.S. is a good friend to those in the Muslim world who want a better future for themselves and actually do want freedom. All right, we'll be back. Uh, I want to talk to you about a crazy story going on in Mississippi. I- is it possible to have two biological moms? Mississippi Supreme Court's got to answer that question. Stay with me. Is it possible for a child to have two biological female parents? I, I know that's a-, a question that you already have an answer to because, no, of course, it is not biologically possible for a child to have two parents who are both female. This is literally biology 101. This is freshman year of high school stuff that you learn. This is the birds and the bees. We all understand this. But we are now living in a progressive, dominated culture where reality is often pushed off to the side. In fact, when you try to support reality, when you try to live a fact-based existence, you are shouted at. You're called a bigot. You're told that you are intolerant and hateful, and there's something deeply wrong with you. And a case in Mississippi, for those of you who I know we've got a very robust Team Buck presence down in Mississippi, those in Mississippi, I don't know if you're aware of this, but right now, the Mississippi Supreme Court is trying to make a determination as to whether a a, a young boy, in this case, uh, a baby boy, uh, can have two, under the law, biologically female parents. Now, now here's how this works. For those of you who are like, this is, I know it's complicated, but this is what's happened with the uh, dissolution of traditional marriage in this country, via law at least, and all those other things that are going on around this and the, and the gender wars and the fights over pronouns. I know it's it's taking us all into crazy town, everybody. I, I get that. But let me walk you through a bit of this specific case down in Mississippi. And then uh, I wish I could say I had the answers for you, but at least at least we should talk about it. So here's what's going on. Mississippi Supreme Court just heard arguments. I believe it was last week about whether this boy who was born to a lesbian couple a same-sex female couple in Mississippi, uh, whether that child should be legally legally considered to be uh, the child of both parents. Well, here's the issue with this. They relied on, because of the whole male-female XX chromosome, XY chromosome reality in which we all still live, despite what left wants to say about it everything else it is still there is still no way scientifically without uh genetic you could call it genetic information i mean i know we're really reducing this down to a particularly clinical discussion but genetic information from a man and genetic information from a woman or genetic information from male and female uh, there's no way to get around that yet does not exist so this lesbian couple received a or or used a sperm donor 
and the uh, partner of this one woman, not not the woman who was pregnant, but the, her partner uh, was, well, ended up getting divorced. So this lesbian couple split, and now she is asserting, meaning the, I, I don't really know, I don't know the names here, so, uh, and, and it's tough to even use the different, I, you know, they're they're asserting in court that they're both mothers, okay? So I can't say the mom or the mother because they're both claiming to be the mother. And this this is what the progressive left has created for us now. We you know, we, we got twenty seven different pronouns, you know, male and female, it's a state of mind, you know, but 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 race is immutable, but male and female is a state of mind. I mean it's they've taken us all to crazy town, like I've said. They are delusional. This is not reality based. But so they're claiming in court that they're they're both moms and the judge is kind of like, ah, uh, and the the truth of the law in Mississippi is that you would need to have a legal process by which the sperm donor gives up all parental rights, because as it stands right now, you had a a, a lesbian couple, a sperm donor that didn't know either of them at all. Right. Just was a sperm donor from a sperm bank. One of the two women gets pregnant. The two women who are married, they are married in the state, well, married in the whole country right now under the law, but they got married in, in Mississippi, and they separate, and the birth mother, which is the correct terminology, the woman that gave birth to this child, got full custody, and the the woman who was the, uh, I think we would say, I, I think wife or partner, I, I'm, I'm saying that honestly, I don't know what the preferred terminology is here. Uh, the partner of the woman who had the baby wants equal custody. And the judge is like, but you're not, you know, you're the equivalent of a, I guess, a step parent in this case. And you never had established legal guardian uh, custody of this child. And in fact, there is a father here who, because of paternity, technically has a legal right to you know, the to paternity rights, right? I mean, this is, whew, it's it's pretty astonishing. Um, it's it's as as uh, quoted here in this article. This case is not an equal protection case or a presumption of marriage ca- marriage case. It is an assisted reproduction case. The main question here is simple: whether a couple, same sex or opposite sex who conceives and has a child through assisted reproduction technology using sperm donor or a surrogate mother should be required to follow existing law and terminate the parental rights of the donor? The answer is a resounding yes, but LGBT, LG, gosh, this is not easy. LGBTQ groups are, are very much involved in this case right now uh, because they're saying that they, they're trying to reframe the whole argument and say that what you have here uh, is a, t- a necessity to get rid of the, quote, gendered... I know, is your head hurting yet? I'm sorry, but th- this is the world. This is Mississippi, everybody, okay? This isn't uh, some, you know, some judge here in New York City who's making it up as he goes along for the left, right? This is in Mississippi. And these LGBTQ groups want the elimination of the legal terms mother and father that... That would therefore mean that a a man who is the biological father, 
I'm not saying, you know, there's a lot more than just being a biological father that's required of a real dad, but you know what I mean? The biological father of a child would no longer, as a legal matter, matter because you would get rid of the term mother and father, and then it would just be two people who are married, and they would have automatic custody uh, and parental rights of any child conceived by either of them. So they want to get rid of the terms mother and father because as long as father is a, is a legal term in the code, it means that there is a presumption that a male was involved here and you would have to eliminate that male's parental rights for two other people. Tyrone, is this making am I am I explaining this properly? I know it's like I'm going in circles here, but is this are you, are you am I follow, is everyone following this? Did the non-biological mother raise the kid uh that is a very good question i think so yes i think that uh so i I, i'm not passing judgment one way or the other on whether this whether this woman she may be a great parent i I have no i'm just saying though this is all about the legal terminology and definitions and they want to eliminate the, the basically what they want is that if you're the guy who is giving the male genetic information into it the the coupling that is required for a baby that no longer has any uh on its on its face has any uh legal importance it's all about whether there's a marriage that exists between two people so you see what i'm saying so like automatically if a woman is married to another woman and a woman has a baby the other woman under law would be considered the second mother and the father would just be cut out automatically. They're trying to change the law so that it says that. Even if he was more than just a sperm donor. I mean, no, well, because if sperm donors can legally, you can, uh, I forget what the term is, but you can get rid of your parental rights. You yeah. know, obviously, otherwise sperm donors, they could be on the hook for child support. They didn't do that in this case. And so legally speaking, they would have to vacate his parental rights as the sperm donor. And it's tiring, right? But like, you know, this is this is complicated. Yes, this is, <laughs> yes, complicated. This is complicated, Tyrone. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to explain as best I can, and I'm not gonna lie. As I'm going through it, I'm like, whew. But at the end of the day, what you have here is, th- and thanks, thanks, Tyrone, for for keeping me sane over here. At the end of the day, guys, what you have is Mississippi Supreme Court is looking at whether whether you can have two biological moms, more or less, as a function of law. Can two, can two moms be the moms and there's no dad and the dad doesn't count at all? Uh, this is where we're heading, everyone. Um, oh, I've got an amazing, amazing audio that I want to play for you on the other side here. I'll give you a little hint. Is Alexa part of the Bilderberg conspiracy? Is, is Alexa working with the Illuminati to try and, and overthrow the good people of this country? I will answer that question or I'll have someone else answer it for you after the break. Stay with me. Okay, so I try not to waste our time here with too much silliness, and I especially don't make a habit of talking about other shows and other hosts uh, without a really good reason, but sometimes something is just so amazing that I feel feel compelled to share it with you, and after a day of very serious and intense news, I want you to kick back, relax, and get ready for what I think is, is one of the great... Uh, one of the great bits of audio I've heard in a in a very long time. You may be familiar with a certain radio host who has a fondness for conspiracies and without ever having met me, uh, apparently dislikes me quite thoroughly. So there's that because I am a 
if I remember correctly, a CIA plant trying to take over conservative media. And, and no, but I, I kind of wish that sounds cool. Nonetheless, he's out there doing a show, and I'm sure some of you listen to it. It can be very entertaining at times, and this was so entertaining that I needed to share it with you because apparently Alex Jones has cracked the code, and he knows that Alexa is actually a super secret CIA spy that is actually a product that you buy on Amazon. What? Here's his interrogation of Alexa. Alexa. Are you connected to the CIA? No, I work for Amazon. Amazon has partnered Alexa. Alexa. You are lying to me. The CIA. I always try to tell the truth. I'm not always right, but I would never intentionally let you or anyone else. Alexa. Alexa. You are programmed, aren't you, to give these responses? That's why you're saying you're not lying intentionally. You have been programmed to give these answers, correct? I wasn't able to understand the question I heard. Alexa. Alexa. (laughs) Who programmed you? Who who programmed you? I'm made by Amazon. Alexa. Alexa. Who is Jeff Bezos? Who is Jeff Bezos? I am an Amazon product. <laughs> I have to say, it was one of the greatest. It was one of the greatest things. I also like how he's he's really he's really getting into it. You know, the interrogation. I was just waiting for him to come out and start pouring like little cups of water over Alexa. You know, uh, Alexa being a, a microphone. You know, home uh, home electronic device. But uh, Alexa, are are you are you connected to CIA, Alexa? Alexa, are, are you, in fact, actually part of the Bilderberg Illuminati conspiracy to destroy America? Alexa. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not letting Alexa slip out of this one. Oh, no. I was waiting for be like, Alexa, if you ever want to see your little mini Alexas again, you're going to come out here with the truth. Oh, man. It was, it was good times. It was good times over the weekend with that guy, I got to say. I... I watched that clip a few times and very much, uh, very much enjoyed it. And I mean, if you haven't heard it, it is, it's amazing. And uh, I, I don't even really know the full, what, what the full conspiracy is here with, with Alexa. I have no idea, but. Alexa. Alexa. <laughs> there you go. You got the idea. Are you connected uh, to the are, CIA? Are you, are you connected to the CIA? Um, and here I, and now this is perfect because Jones could play back. My show, because I'm ex-CIA, saying that Alexa and his inter- his interrogation of an inanimate object is uh, is crazy, and, and then this is all part of the conspiracy, right? So it's kind of amazing. It's like Buck Sexton, Bob's big boy here, told told phony, never been anywhere. I mean, a couple war zones, a few other places, and like meanwhile, I was sitting here in Austin, you know, talking about freedom, America. Uh, but yeah, 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 that was uh, he brought some some holiday cheer into my weekend. I was like, this is amazing. I hope you found that as amusing as I did because no one's going to just slip away from the Alex Jones interrogation machine, including Alexa. Um, Oh, I I will get into uh, team buck speaks with you here in just a few moments. And, uh, and this is a good time 
to note that if you would like to be included in all things uh, Team Buck Speaks, you can just go to facebook.com slash bucksex and also email us at officialteambuck at gmail.com. That's officialteambuck at gmail.com. We read all those emails. It's just me, Tyrone, and Amy here in the hut holding things down. And so uh, we are very much looking to hearing from all of you. Uh, and that's a great way to do it. Also, by the way, you can tweet at me during the show, too. It's at Buck Sexton. I feel like this is not a a particularly heavy tweeting audience. Twitter tends to be more. Look, it's just true. There tend to be more Democrats on Twitter than uh, Republicans. And that's fine. But just letting you know, if you want to, you can tweet at me as well. It's Buck Sexton there. Uh, today was was an interesting day because you had so many people that I think wanted to, you know, so much of the news cycle was supposed to be focused on something else. I was just thinking about this. They had these uh, Trump accusers were supposed to be on Megyn Kelly's show on, uh, what was that, NBC, right, on whatever her show is called on Today's show. And there's there was supposed to be this whole effort to slam Trump in advance of the uh, Roy Moore election and get the, the, the news cycle going into today was supposed to be Republicans' sexual misconduct and Republican sexual harassment. And because of this uh, terrorist, Mr. Ula, who was an attempted suicide bomber right here in Midtown, not far from where I'm broadcasting this show, uh, that's that, that took the whole narrative and took it the opposite direction. And you see this time and again. Mainstream media thinks that they still can control the narrative and they can to an extent, but it's lessening over time. And that's part of their paranoia. That is part of why they are so upset when Trump calls them fake news and at these other platforms that are popping up and holding them accountable in a way they weren't before. But uh, obviously, we're going to have a big news day tomorrow with the Roy Moore election in Alabama. So we'll be talking about that. And uh, we'll do Team Buck Speaks with some amazing questions and comments from all of you right after this break. Quite a day, team. Before I get into the latest Team Buck Speaks, I want to share with you a quick story from over the weekend. So I was with uh, Miss Molly's family for a a belated birthday dinner for her. Her parents uh, wanted us to uh, all get together, and that was certainly fun, and we went to a a great restaurant, Mr. Oh, I was going to call him Mr. Molly. That's not really his. But Miss Molly's dad is quite the, uh, quite the foodie, quite the uh, uh, wine connoisseur, and and just generally knowledgeable about the the restaurant world because he works in the world of food and, and restaurants. And so we were at the. And he's a, he's a great guy, but he also very much speaks his mind. And I just thought this was really funny. We're at this restaurant downtown, and he. Uh, he ordered the entire menu, which was fun because it meant that we got to try all kinds of different things and food that I would not normally have. The The restaurant is West African takes on different cuisines that you, uh, of the world, I guess you'd say, or West African infused New American, maybe. I don't, I don't even know really what you – there's just a West African vibe to some of the food. And the chef came out afterwards because Molly's dad is – of some note in the world of food and cuisine. And Chef's dad came out and said, uh, you know, just wanted to say hello and thank you so much. And it was, we really are so glad you could join us tonight. And Molly's dad was like, well, you know, your food was fantastic. Desserts, though, 
could have been a little better. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, wait a second. I didn't, and I'm sitting there and the chef was like, oh, okay. And he goes, no, 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 your food was great, but the desserts could have been better a little bit, a little, little bit. <laughs> I just saw the whole, oh, so because he's in the industry, he's actually giving him a real, you know, usually I feel like the chef comes out and you're like, chef, you're, that was the most amazing meal ever. That That's just my but I forgot I'm dealing with somebody who's also very much in the field. And so it was kind of like, you know, hey, hey, I respect the game. I respect what you did here. Great entrees and apps. But the uh, desserts, a little bit, little, little, could have been a little bit better. Uh, desserts were, and what's funny is he was totally right. My dessert was barely, uh, barely finishable. I finished it, of course, but barely finishable. But I just think it's funny because you have these expectations. I don't know how many of you have ever had this experience, whether you're in a, a burger joint or you're in a, you know, a restaurant celebrating a special occasion that's kind of fancy. Uh, but whenever the chef comes out, I just feel like you're like, thank you so much, chef. I, it would never occur to me to be like, yeah, you know, your desserts a little, uh, little could have used a little, little more, you know, a little, little up, uh, kick it up a notch, as as Emerald would say. Uh, anyway, I, all right. Now with that, I I should shift and will shift into. Some uh, Team Buck speaks, but I thought that was kind of a, a funny, a funny moment. Uh, so let's get into it, shall we? Uh, the first one up this, well, I was going to say this week. It's today. We really do this now every day, but all of you seem to enjoy hearing from each other. And I, I love getting a chance to read your, instead of just responding individually, I can respond on the show and the entire country can hear it. And anybody with access to the interwebs who wants to download the show on iTunes and subscribe or listen on the iHeart radio app all right here we go uh thomas writes in everywhere i go today this was from earlier today it's buck in the news buck on fox buck on the blaze everybody wants buck congratulations on your program keep it going looking forward to many many years of buck thomas thank you for your kind words today because of my previous uh time in the cia and the nypd i was particularly useful to a lot of different media outlets it was great to get a chance to call in and uh and speak to my old, my old boss uh, and and friend Glenn Beck. He had me. He was kind of to have me on his show this morning. But yeah, you know, it's I'm I'm able to be so, uh, or I'm able to be somewhat useful today, which is nice. Although, you know, the storyline in a couple of days will be tax reform, and it'll just be a lot of people who used to work for the Reagan administration, and Buck will get no love. But anyway, thank you, Thomas. I appreciate it. Joan writes in, hi, Buck. Enjoy watching and listening to you on Fox News. I agree with all you tell your audience. I think you are fantastic. I did not know you have your own radio show. I will have to tune in for it. Please continue your wonderful work and thank you for your past expertise. Well, Joan, thank you so much. Hopefully, if you followed through on your message here, you will, in fact, be listening to the show and you would be a first time listener after seeing me on Fox that uh, you'd be a first-time listener that would be here with me in the Freedom Hut uh, and hearing yourself, hearing your own message on air. So thank you very much for that, and I'm so glad you're able to find the show. A lot of really nice... Not, some some days the messages are like, Buck, get back to like meat and potatoes, do what you do. But but today, uh, a lot of, lot of very nice messages. So thank you all for that. I, I do appreciate it. Jason... With the following, congratulations on a great 2017, Buck. You've done some awesome work this year. I have a question. All right, here we go. If we grant that a terrorist is acting as a martyr 
because they see themselves as a morality correcting agent, why not work to change the language in which they are viewed? These morally corrupt, mentally damaged individuals attack innocence. I guess what I'm asking you is why doesn't it make sense to move the language or is it simply lack of willingness within the largely liberal media to participate in moving the language? Okay, so so Jason's asking a question about terrorist terminology here and what we and I address this at the start of the show. I am frustrated that everyone keeps referring to, you know, yeah, a terrorist attack, but he was carrying a pipe bomb. No, he was trying to be a suicide bomber, everybody. It was a suicide vest. He was a suicide bomber. He just didn't pull it off. But that's important for us to keep in mind because it indicates the seriousness of the threat and the depravity of the individuals that are engaged in this uh, this terrorist activity against us. As to what we could call them, I mean, you know, you, you want to be descriptive. And there's certainly a pejorative whenever you call someone a terrorist. But, you know, I think calling them as a matter of just day to day description you know, terrible jihadist losers or something. It's not really, I don't know what the term would be. You know, look, if you can come up with one, let me know. If there's something that people have been pushing back on lone wolf terrorism, for example, and saying we should call them uh, lone rat terrorists, I think is what I heard. I'm like, all right, I mean, you know, this, this, it's not about the, you know, anthropomorphism of a wolf versus a rat versus some other animal. You know, who cares, right? This is about, describing people who are trying to do us harm because of an ideology and we need to stop them and and stamp them out and defeat them. Uh, But the answer to your question, Jason, is sure, but what would the term be? Um, And maybe you can help come up with one. Chester writes in, hey, Team Buck, Shields High, I've been a longtime listener and I've shared your podcast with my wife and coworkers. I am a paramedic in Mesa, Arizona, and my partner and I listen to you in the ambulance almost every shift. I wanted you to know about the recent post you made about the shooting here in my hometown. On that video that you posted, the shooter is not speaking. The officer giving commands is the shooter's sergeant. The shooter only speaks once the woman is detained. Brailsford is not the one issuing commands to the suspect. My brother is a is a, a law enforcement officer here and went through the academy with him. Please don't think he is the one instigating uh, Shaver. Keep up the great work. We love your podcast. Chester, uh, let me say that, yes, initially in the retweet, because I just saw the video and accepted the first description of the tweet, um, I, but I did I did figure this out through the course of the day and actually wrote, as I uh, hope, I, I believe I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, wrote about this for thehill.com. Um, I would very much like it if those of you could go uh, check out that piece if you haven't read it. It's gotten a lot of traction from folks. I really, The Hill gave me a lot of room to work through piece by piece because I know many of you have uh, sympathy and and tremendous respect for and deference for law enforcement. I do too. But in this case, law enforcement went too far. Uh, and I, I try to make the case as clear as possible. And uh, the, the title of the piece is If Police Can Execute uh, an innocent person on video, none of us are safe. Look, I'm trying to make a very clear point here and, and get people to read this argument. So I know the headline is is uh, is bold, but you should check it out. It's on the hill dot com. And uh, I make the but yes, I know officer as actually Sergeant Langley was the one issuing the commands. Uh, he he made the situation much worse. I mean, he, he really teed the whole thing up for tragedy. 
and Brailsford was the one who pulled the trigger, but Sergeant Langley, that guy needs some serious uh, retraining, and you know, I guess you know he can't be charged with anything because he didn't pull the trigger, but he certainly made it a lot more likely that trigger was going to get pulled. All right, uh, one more here. Uh, do we have? Yeah, we have time for one more uh, from Jim. Good morning, sir. Hope you are well. I'm just catching up on your shows. As always, they are great. I'm also a fan of chocolate milk and whole milk. At the end of the day, I make it in a frozen mug. It's one of my favorite things. Give it a try. Keep up. Good work. Shields high, brother. Got to be whole milk, by the way. Anything else is just pretending to be milk. Okay, totally agree with you, Jim. I will try this cold glass for the making of my chocolate milk. But uh, I, I, I love chocolate milk. I'm not, I'm not even going to pretend. I'm, I have a weakness for it. Chocolate and milk or separately, well, separately, together, or mixed. All of the above among my favorite. These are a few of Buck's favorite things. Uh, okay, everybody, please do download the podcast. Uh, we got the history show starting in January, so you want to get on that download list now. You can subscribe. It's totally free. Also, consider checking out, especially as we approach the holidays, some of our wonderful sponsors, Nine Line Apparel, Crate Club, all the rest of them. Uh, check them out. And I'll be with you tomorrow with a, another wonderful show, hopefully. So until then, as always, Shields High.